And I came across this single quote from W.E.B. Du Bois. Now, remember, this is 1901. He said, the problem of the 20th century, not the 21st, the problem of the 20th century will be the problem of the color line. And as I was starting this research after George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, the whole racially troubled moment that we're living in, I realized 120 years later, it's the same quote. The problem of the 21st century is the problem of the color line. And as I started to immerse myself in the music and the history of the 60s, what I realized, and this is the central new lens that I'm looking through for this whole book, is that I'm going to say that almost every single note of music written in the 60s is about race. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Here we are, the last episode of season four of the SIDCast, episode number overall, 154. It's really incredible. A lot of people ask me, well, what are you going to do with all this? Are you going to write a book based on what you've learned? And I probably could write a couple of books by now based on all the lessons learned and the experiences I've had in talking to so many interesting guests. And I might. Almost all of my episodes end with the same question about the advice you'd give if you could magically go back in time to when you were 21 years old. And my son-in-law, Louis, suggested to me the other day that that would be a great book, a great topic for a book, except the target market there would be young people who are just in university or just graduating or just starting their careers to get the benefit of all that advice that people wish they had known in their time. And who knows, Lewis, I might take you up on that idea. This episode today, this last episode, number 154, is with one of the most interesting people I have met through the podcast. And that's saying something because I've had some pretty unbelievable people. His name is Rob Capolo. The subtitle of this episode is The Polyglot Pied Piper of Music, which is a pretty good alliteration. The Polyglot Pied Piper of Music. Rob is a real presence. When we recorded this episode, he is sitting by his piano and even gives us a little impromptu lesson along the way. He's written and performed extensively around the American Songbook. He's written a bunch of books, actually. He has a long-running series on NPR that help people understand mostly classical music, but not only. In fact, I think his superpower is his ability to unravel some of the mysteries of classical music for novices, for people of all ages and backgrounds. And he helps people get that kind of aha moment where they say, ah, now I understand. Now I get it. Now I can really enjoy this music at a different level. His series is called What Makes It Great. And he's had those presentations for over 20 years, and he does a bit of that in this episode as well. He's had various residencies in all sorts of places, National Gallery of Canada, Stanford University. He's been active with the Native American tribal communities in Montana, with inner city high school students in Louisiana. He's been around the world. He's taught and shared music from everyone from tots, barely out of diapers, to musicologists at Ivy League universities. He has done it all. He's got all sorts of live stream programs that he created during COVID about music, a lot about the music of Stephen Sondheim. He's been involved with dance groups. I mean, it just goes on and on. It's kind of incredible. And I encourage you to read the bio that's in the show notes for this episode. He's writing a book about the Woodstock generation. He's writing a book about the Beatles. 
and analyzing the genius of that music. He's, of course, been on all kinds of different media. You know, Today Show with Katie Couric. He was uh, PBS's Live from Lincoln Center. He was a subject of a full-length PBS documentary as a composer. I mean, it just goes on and on. And such a dynamic, compelling, engaging person at every level. His intellect, and not just about music, but about life, shines throughout the episode, throughout my conversation with him. And I know I could have kept on talking to Rob Capolo. I know you want to get right into this episode. I'm, I'm barely scratching the surface of all the things that he's done. He really is a polyglot Pied Piper of music. Rob Capolo on the Sidcast, episode number 154, the last episode of this season. I hope you enjoy it and we'll see you next year. Take care. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein. And today I have a very special guest with me, Rob Capolo. Hi there, Rob. Hey, so great to be here. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. We're going to talk about you. We're going to talk about music and we're going to talk i mean that's pretty much the same thing when you get right down to it because you've been involved <laughs> in so many aspects i just want to start by asking where did it come from not just love of music but just incredibly deep immersion in so many genres and so many aspects of music where did it come from well i mean originally it came from not the greatest place when i was three years old my mother played the piano and she played really badly and so my first <laughs> inspiration was to somehow get her off the piano bench and i was successful so I started playing the piano at three, and my sole goal was to just get her to stop. So that's where it started. Are you saying that at the age of three, you could tell what bad piano is? I think bad piano is something you could tell at a remarkably early age. I don't think it was a special musical gift on my part. I think it was pretty obvious to pretty much anyone. <laughs> I was going to ask you about family influences, so indirectly your mom. But are there other people? Yeah, a big part, yeah. <laughs> yeah, musicians or people on the academic side or any other aspect of music in your family that were kind of role models for you? I will say this. On the plus side, my mother was a huge lover of music and she was a subscriber to everything. You know, the Metropolitan Opera, the New York Philharmonic, the Chamber Music Society. There was a picture of Leonard Bernstein in practically every room of our house. I mean, he was God. And in fact, for years, that was the aspiration for me. I just had to be the next picture on the wall next to Leonard Bernstein. And that was a huge role model for me. So there was always music in the house. There was always opera in the house. There was always chamber music. She would take me to concerts. I mean, at eight, I saw my first opera, Parsifal, not the usual way an eight-year-old gets into music. So there was a lot of music in the house. She was only a bad pianist. My father wasn't interested in music at all. So mostly, I would say the only influence was just the constant immersion in the sound of it. So there are not a lot of eight-year-olds that are going to sit still for an opera. I thought it was amazing. Still to this day, when I hear the Good Friday music from Parsifal, which is some of the most beautiful music in the entire world, I was transfixed. Yes, it's not an average eight-year-old's fantasy, but for me, I was transfixed. Yeah, that's fantastic. And so in high school, you kept playing piano, maybe some other instruments? Oh, I played a lot of instruments. But also for me, I did everything. My hair was down to my shoulders. I played in a rock band at the World's Fair when I was 12 years old. I played jazz piano. To me, really, I didn't know that there was any difference between the Beatles, jazz, piano music. To me, there was just music. Only later did I learn that you were in separate niches, separate categories. You weren't even supposed to like the people in the other categories. And each one had their own dress code. But for me, I played every kind of thing. And I played electric guitar, I played piano, I played violin, I played the flute. I mean, to me, it was just all music. Yeah, that does sound unusual because, you know, you talk to actually almost anyone, but if they're into rock music or they're into jazz, it's not that they don't necessarily like classical music, but 
that's probably not going to be their thing and maybe vice versa. But you're agnostic is not even a positive enough word <laughs> for it because you are embracing it. Well, you know, one of my favorite quotes comes from Duke Ellington and he says, there's only two kinds of music, good music and the other kind. <laughs> and I truly have believed that since I was four or five and I continue to operate on that basic principle today. You've done so many different things in music from teaching to conducting and composing and lots of other things. My question is, how did this actually happen? Were you directed maybe when you get to college level or just post-college? Were you directed early on yourself on what you specifically wanted to do, which projects you wanted to work on? Or was it more of a, let's say, an organic thing that happened that you were engaged, you were immersed, opportunities would arise and you say, well, this will be interesting. One of my favorite quotes is from Joseph Campbell, the brilliant writer on mythology. And he says, the privilege of a lifetime is being who you are. And, you know, discovering who you actually are is a kind of a complex procedure because people push you in one direction or another. And in fact, for me, the organic process was actually not following what anybody else told me I should do. There was actually no one supporting what I wanted to do. And in fact, I spend a good bit of time these days trying to actually be the kind of support to young people and young musicians that I never received myself because you get pushed in a very kind of a niche direction. As I said, my mother had this Leonard Bernstein picture in every room. And so early on, that was simply what I thought I should do. Well, first of all, I was not even supposed to be a musician. I mean, if you're a Jewish kid and I was an undergraduate at Yale, forget it. You're supposed to be a lawyer or a doctor. <laughs> so already my mother had picked out the law firm who I was going to be a partner in long before I started to go into music. And early on, there was just not even a push to take that seriously. It was great that I did it as a hobby and that I did it quite seriously as a hobby, but no one really even encouraged me to major in it or do music for a living, I could do it and it helped me get into Yale, but certainly I shouldn't be a music major and God forbid actually do it afterwards. But I had this fascinating experience where after my second year there, I went in the summer to Fontainebleau, France <laughs> to study with a woman named Nadia Boulanger. I don't know if that name is familiar to your listeners, but in the music world, she's known for having been probably the most famous composition teacher of the 20th century. She taught Gershwin, Stravinsky, she taught Bernstein, Aaron Copeland, Philip Glass, a whole diverse set, Yetzola, Quincy Jones. I mean, she taught everybody. To the general public, if she's known at all, it's from that 1970 movie Love Story, in which Ali McGraw gets a scholarship to study harpsichord with Boulanger in Paris, <laughs> but instead decides to stay home, marry Ryan O'Neill, get leukemia, and die. You just gave away the ending of that movie, just so you know. I did, it, it, but nobody's watching that movie anymore, and Eric Siegel is no longer a professor. <laughs> but I went there theoretically for the summer. And at the time, I was starting to major in music, but still not sure that that was what I was going to do because no one wanted that career path for me. And I went there for the summer and it was an incredible experience. And then I went to my last lesson, supposedly to just say goodbye. And she says to me, and I still remember this moment, she says, Kepilov, she says, you have great, great talent for music, no skills. You stay with me, I give you skills. You leave, you will never get them, your choice. And that night I dropped out of college oh and somehow God. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I stayed in Paris for two years and pretty much that was the turning point for me of everything. Wow. These great teachers, beyond vital, they're so important. And when I talk to people, not just on the podcast, but just in general about their lives and what happened, they're going to tell me a story about a teacher and not necessarily a teacher, like a mentor. I have a word I've used in a book that I wrote where I call them super bosses. They don't have yeah. to be your boss, but they're super and they just do something and life is never the same. And what they often do is they see potential in others. 
often before they see it themselves are fully appreciated. And it sounds like uh, Nadia Boulanger was one of those people. She was definitely that. And she saw the potential. And she also saw the lack of skills or particularly the kind of skills that she was there to give. And that night I dropped out. My parents wouldn't support it. I spent two years in France and they wouldn't pay. And, you know, living the Garrett life of La Boheme, you know, with one hot plate, no refrigerator, living on the floor. It was the two years that really changed my life. And it was that one conversation. What is meant by the skills that you didn't have? What is that? There's a kind of way that music was taught in the days of Mozart and Beethoven that really isn't taught today. Today, if you go to a music school, you know, you do a little harmony for a couple months, you do a little counterpoint, and in a year you're done. With Boulanger, first, you write a thousand harmony exercises. You do counterpoint exercises. You do figured bass exercises. You do score reading exercises. You learn seven clefs to read in all these different clefs. It's a kind of training that Mozart and Beethoven had that we simply don't have anymore. It's the equivalent of the kind of training that a painter would get who was forced to do still lifes, forced to do simple drawing. It's kind of the real foundational training that almost isn't given anymore. Now yeah. it's just quietly passed over. So for example, we would have to do a harmony exercise where she would give us a melody and we would have to harmonize it in the other parts with only like the most limited palette of chords. It was like you could only use red and blue for six months. Right. So by the time you got to green, it was like incredible <laughs> liberation. So you really learn each element of the vocabulary so carefully and you really got those skills. You could play that old kind of figured bass style. In the old days, you would, as a harpsichordist, just be given a bass line and numbers, and you would have to know how to turn that into music. It was routine in 1700 and 1800. Almost no one could do it now. That's how I got my first job. I was the only person in New Haven who was doing a revival of this old opera who could actually play an unfigured harpsichord part. The guy who was doing it was the conductor of the Yale Symphony, and then when he left, he gave me the job. But it was those basic skills, ear training, conducting, scoring, the real fundamentals that down to the bottom, like a person who worked at a company, but who started in the mailroom and knew every aspect of the business, how it really worked, everything inside a car, how it worked. It was that foundational training that was really the key to everything I do today. I wonder how common that is, never mind in music, but for almost any field. Everyone's in such a hurry to get to the winner's circle. I mean, it's a real commitment. You mentioned ear training. Could you tell us a little bit how that happens? Yeah. So, for example, you would get to the point, and I still use this to this day. You're sitting by a piano, just I'll say, so feel free to demonstrate in any way you want. Yeah. So they would play, you know, and you would have to write down every single note. And then it would get more and more complex until you could literally transcribe it. So at this point, lots of what I'm doing is taking actual recordings and simply transcribing them myself for the books that I'm writing. But it would get to the point where it really complicated music, more and more complicated, and you would have to be able to transcribe it yourself. Which, by the way, when you're a conductor of an orchestra, this is incredibly vital. Because you're hearing note by note, and you know exactly what it is. So is it the case that most conductors have or don't have this skill? And you're just describing. Well, it depends. I mean, I'm not going to say anything bad about any conductor. Of course not. I will just say that this is a skill that is lacking more today than it was in the past. Yes. Well, that is an appropriately politically correct response to that. But we understand you. There's so many interesting things you did that I want to talk about. Well, almost everyone loves the American Songbook, and you wrote a book called Listening for America. So the first question I have about this is, where did this label, the American Songbook, even come from? 
I mean, it's a made up label. In other words, there is no real thing called the American Songbook and there's no DSM manual of psychiatric diseases that says this is in it. <laughs> it just became a general term for music from, say, the 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s that have become canonical Broadway classics. The music of Gershwin and Porter, Richard Rogers, that kind of music. But it's not like there is an officially sanctioned American Songbook. And in fact, one of the interesting things is I started doing programs for Lincoln Center's American Songbook series. And when the American Songbook series started there, it was very focused on stuff like Gershwin, Porter, Rogers, the classics from that period. But now that series encompasses things that are being written today that are being called the American Songbook. So like so many things, it's a made up title and everyone then gets into huge debates over whether this belongs in it or doesn't belong in it. And it's, of course, an artificial debate because it's simply a made-up title. But today, it traditionally refers to those Broadway songs of the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, sort of the great so-called golden age of the American Songbook, with Sondheim kind of at the end of that period of the American Songbook. But again, it's a made-up title, and we could have any kind of fun debate that would be pointless about what is or isn't part of the American Songbook. But that's what it traditionally refers to. It's quite interesting, Rob, that you said that there are songs being written today sure. that are entering the canon of the American Songbook. I had no idea about that. I assumed it was what you said. You know, a lot of the stuff that's written on Broadway these days, Light in the Piazza could be called the Great American Songbook Stuffs, which is happening at the public theater. So people are still writing music like that. But it's interesting that also people look at it the other way. Some people are saying, well, that's part of the American Songbook. Other people are saying it's just American art song. So once again, once you get to labels and categories, all you get is debate. And really, in my opinion, I still keep going back to Duke Ellington. There's only two kinds of music, good music and the other kind. And right. you know, you can get to these debates, and I talk about this in my book even, is Porgy and Bess an opera? Or is it a musical? I mean, all of these debates really, in my opinion, are not to the heart of what it's all about. But we do desire to put things in comfortable niches. And so you can have that kind of debate. So you're famous for well, a bunch of things, but what makes it great is this kind. And I was listening to some, I can't say that I picked up all the nuance, but I did at least try and I'm a beginner, but that's okay. I want to know what makes a standard song and you can pick anyone you want. You know them all and lectured about most of them. What makes it great? Why do we keep listening to it? Well, as I say, in each case, there's something special about that particular song. What's interesting, right now, I'm writing a book on the music of the Woodstock generation. And aside from taking apart what actually makes a song like She Loves You by the Good. Beatles great musically, which uh -huh. I can certainly do, there's also the sense that it often is part of someone's life experience. And in a way, Oftentimes, these are songs that were the soundtrack to someone's teen years. So there's not only just the actual content musically of what makes a song great, but it's all the associations that it has in your life. And I just recently been doing some talks around this book. It's interesting. I'm doing talks about a book that I have not yet written, you know, <laughs> sharing some of the early material. But when you talk about music of the Woodstock generation to people who were of that generation, the attachment to that music and what makes it great goes so beyond what the actual notes are. The resonances and the childhood memories that call up in addition to that. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't actually music that makes it great. For example, well, I just happened to mention it. When you take a song like She Loves You, I mean, yeah. we think that that's just the simple song, but there's so much going on in the first four seconds. For example, 
I mean, we just happened to mention it. She loves you. You probably don't notice it, but it actually starts off with six great drum notes before you even know that you're listening. It starts off with a... Barry Gordy, who founded Motown Records, says that the key to a success of a record is its first five seconds. Does it grab you? The first chapter of my first book is called Beginnings Are Everything. And that's true everywhere in life, whether it's a speech, Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins, whether it's the first line of a book. But before you even know it, you get this. And then the voice comes in before you're even ready for it to start. After five, go, she loved. I mean, it's already kicked off. And then you've got this great beginning. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got a simple musical idea, essentially. But you do it three times, but each time the chord is different. First time. Then you have this same melody. A different chord. Then you have it a third time. So you've heard these notes three times. Once like this. Once like this. Once like this. And then only then does it actually resolve to the key of the piece here. And they sing these two notes together, which are really hard to sing together to make that really special. And then to make it even more special, George plays this little guitar riff. Now there's a great blues note in there. This would be normal, but instead of it's and a little slide. So you've got this great riff. And not only that, and this is the first six seconds, a normal drum part would just go bass drum, bass drum, bass drum, bass drum. If you listen closely, Ringo does something really special. He goes bass drum, bass drum, bass drum, bass drum, drum, bass drum, bass drum, bass drum, bass drum, drum. And that one little extra bass drum, drum, what we call a triplet, totally changes the whole feel of that opening. Now, that's just the first five seconds. Now, a lot of what made the Beatles great is also their hairstyles, their shaking of their hair, their personalities, and that's part of it. But in the end, it's that stuff in the music that actually made that so special, even though you might not be aware of it. And that's just the first six seconds of the piece. Yeah. And in fact, the song you just picked is such a simple early song compared to some of the later kind of much more complex, sophisticated, right? I mean, that's why I picked it, because it seems like there's nothing there, but this is a long way from Sgt. Pepper, where the music gets unbelievably complex. But even in this early song that kicked off February 9th, 1964, the Ed Sullivan Show, 73 million people, even in the early music, there's a lot more than you think. And that's at the heart of what made it great. So now, you know, you're making me wonder, I don't know whether you can answer this, but there's a level of nuance in what you're describing that they created. And because they created so often, it cannot be random. So how do creators think about this? I don't know whether you looked at that process specifically, but how do they come up with exactly the points, you know, that extra drum and then three in a row and then the whole, where's that come from? Well, I think what it really comes from, and I think this is true really across the board, and it's not only artists, but it's a kind of what I call listening for possibility. At the heart of all great creators is exactly. a kind of ability to pay attention but not only to just pay attention to what's happening, but to listen for possibilities. Stravinsky says that we tend to think of creativity in general as a kind of an inner game, as if in order to create something great, you need to shut out the outside of the world, 
turn inward and create out of the deepest inner recesses of your own imagination. Stravinsky says it's the opposite. He says creativity begins with observation, with noticing what's right in front of you, with paying attention, with to like a simple idea. It's all about paying attention, but then listening for possibilities. You know, I recently did a program on Mozart Requiem out at Stanford, and somebody asked a question, you know, how would you describe a fugue to a 16-year-old kid in this very complex musical form? And I had the orchestra answer the question, and they were giving all these complicated answers that no one would possibly understand. But really at the heart of fugue is the answer to your question, which is it's about paying attention to one idea and hearing how much you can hear in that one idea. And I think that's true whether you're a poet. I was driving recently out in Stanford and in so many Lexuses out there. I mean, somebody paid attention and saw a possibility in what a car could be, what you could get rid of, what you could do in a completely different way. And I think whether you're talking about iPods or Walkmans or Lexuses or She Loves You or a complex symphony, it's about really learning to pay attention and listen for possibility. That really is the key. And I think the great thing about it for us is somehow you're brought into that world where anything can matter. Every poem is about one little idea and you see what the potential is. Well, this listening for opportunities for observations, in theory, anyone can do that. Maybe not the way the Beatles did it, but you can still do it in your own way, in your own world, just by opening yourself up to that. Well, originally, I talked mostly about music to musicians, <laughs> but in the last, say, eight to nine years, I started to talk to corporations about listening for possibility. And now I go to the Dairy Farmers of America. I did the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference this year. And you start to realize, you know, it's interesting, putting things in bigger and bigger contexts. The famous conversation is if you're interested in trains, when trains are no longer there, you don't have a career. But if you're interested in transportation, that your career can change. And it's the same thing. Originally, if you're only interested in listening to music, that's one set of people you can talk to and one set of programs you can do. But if you start to realize that what you're really interested in is listening, not just listening to music, then listening opens up the umbrella and opens up the spectrum. And suddenly you can talk to therapists because they're in the listening business as well. And suddenly everyone who's in a relationship or in a corporation, everyone is interested in listening. So gradually, this is back to the very first question you asked about the organic path. The organic path that I took started very small from being interested in listening to music. And when I was 24, I was a professor at Yale teaching musicians about music. And then gradually, then I went to Broadway, then things got bigger and bigger. And the umbrella became not listening to music, but just listening in general. And that really connects you to anyone. That actually suggests a creative career, not just the creativity of writing music and understanding music, but the choice of problem or issue or opportunity to go after, immerse yourself in. And no one was suggesting that to me. No, so it was nobody was allowing it to find itself. You know, the privilege of a lifetime is being who you are. And that's what I've always been interested in. But finding that route myself was one that I had to take because no one was pushing me along that route. When you mention therapy, I'm thinking of Professor Rita Sharon, who's at Columbia University, and she's one of the founders of a field called narrative medicine. And it's not meant for therapists necessarily. It's meant for any physician to truly listen to their patients so they understand exactly what's going on so they can come up with a plan of action that makes sense. You know, it's not always the right idea to put a Band-Aid on. That might be the right thing, but maybe somebody wants something completely different. And one of the problem medicine, of course, is we don't give enough time. Doctors are not able to give enough time. But those that do, and I have a country doctor here up in Hanover, New Hampshire, who spends an hour for a regular checkup, and he 
asked you about your family and you talk about some interesting things you've been reading and it's fantastic. It's a privilege really to have that opportunity. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? That had a big influence on my life. You know, my father, this was quite a while ago, but he went in for what was supposed to be just a routine procedure, a simple routine procedure. Something happened in the operating room. We still to this day don't know. And the next minute we were being asked to make life support decisions. Mm. And I remember the handling of that conversation between the staff and us was so poor that I felt impelled to start doing listening programs for hospitals. And so I went out to Stanford Medical Center and I started working with interns and residents on listening. And it was fascinating. I remember going to a class where they were teaching how to do input, you know, patient intake, and just watching the professor model good and bad versions. What I realized was there was really no difference. They still weren't really listening. There was a set of agendas of what they needed to be answered And so if the patient said something that was on their list of what they wanted to know, they heard it, but they didn't hear anything else. And what you realize is so often it's not even what patients are saying, it's how they're saying it, it's their body gestures. So much is being communicated beyond the actual words they're speaking. So I realized that listening is such a larger thing than just hearing. And I've actually spent a good bit of time now working with medical people on that whole concept of listening, because you're right, it is so rare to have a doctor like you who are really interested in that. And in fact, there's a wonderful book, Kitchen Table Wisdom, written by a doctor out at Stanford, which is all about this topic and which I highly, highly recommend. And she talks a lot about listening and she talks a lot about labels too. The minute you have a label for a disease, you stop listening. Anyway, but yes, you are absolutely right. That is really, really interesting. A label is a mask that life wears, is her phrase, which I think is a beautiful phrase. And it's true about music and everything else. What it also reminds me of is not just the listening, but the looking part. There's a learning to look movement in the art world. We, in fact, we have a beautiful little museum here. And speaking about working with different types of groups, often we'll have executives come back to do some type of management program, let's say, and we'll have uh, two or three hours in the museum we're led by a couple of docents that's called learning to look. And they walk in, you know, kind of thinking, oh my God, what is this touchy-feely stuff? And they walk out transformed. It is incredible to see. I will say that one of the biggest influences on how what makes it great got started was something very much like that. When I was an undergraduate at Yale, I had a girlfriend who was a painter and I didn't know that much about art. So I figured I'd take a course on impressionism. And the interesting thing was it was a regular course, you know, slides in the classroom. But then each week we would go to the museum, the Yale Museum, and he would talk for an hour on one painting. And it was a masterclass in how to look. I mean, I did not know how to look. You know, later in life, I've done a project with the the National Gallery of Canada, and that's a project for another conversation. But they told me that most people spend approximately 10 seconds in front of a painting because no one knows what to do after Mm -hmm. those 10 seconds, how to look. And I still remember the final exam was one of the keys to me to creating what makes it great. The final exam was to pick a painting you like, stand in front of it for one hour and write what you see. And having to stand in front of a painting for an hour and continue to look is, again, it's about that paying attention, listening for possibilities. But that was really the model for me of what makes it great is for music, to stand in front of a piece of music for an hour and look and really see all the things that normally just fly by. This really fundamental, what we're talking about, it goes far beyond music. It's about life. It's about breathing. Really interesting. Yeah, it's about paying attention to your life, paying attention to what's right in front of you. So, Rob, as you know, lots of rock stars have recorded American Standards, a songbook. Bob Dylan, Rod Stewart, Linda Ronstadt years ago, and plenty, plenty more. There's something here so enduring about it 
Uh, and they usually do it later in their career when they've already made it big and they've done their thing. And they can afford to. They can it. afford to. And then you hear them talking about, this is what I always wanted to do, but somehow they were afraid to. But there is something really enduring. First of all, what do you think about that? Just if there's anything you want to add about that. Yeah, I do. One of the things that's really interesting, and this is one of the differences between classical music and popular music, and one of the reasons these standards have survived so long. In classical music, fundamentally, there's a fixed text. Now, yes, people come along and play a Bach or a Beethoven piece a little bit different, but fundamentally, the range of possibility is fairly narrow. Now, to a musician, they'll tell you, to a classical musician, they'll tell you the range is enormous. <laughs> but believe me, I mean, the notes are given, the dynamics are given. Yes, there's some tempo choices, but fundamentally, the document is a fairly fixed document and it's limited in what you can do with it. But one of the things that's unique about the American Songbook is that it has survived by being changed. In other words, each generation comes along and reinvents the song. And if you listen to an Ella Fitzgerald version, I once did a program at Lincoln Center called Anything But Standard. <laughs> and what we did was we started off with T for Two, and I found the original chart, the original Broadway musical, and we were able to recreate exactly what it was. And then we took the Ella Fitzgerald version in which the chords are changed, the melodies change. She's scat singing all over the place. But in a way, that's why that has survived and why Rod Stewart can do it today, because each of them bring themselves to it and change the music. And so the music is far more malleable than a piece of a Beethoven symphony. And so I think it has survived by being changed. And it's a whole different view of what tradition is. Now, there's a quote that I wish I had at my fingers, but I'll give you the gist of it. Stravinsky says that tradition is an heirloom that survives not by being kept behind plate glass, but by being passed from generation to generation as an heirloom but only after each generation makes that tradition bear fruit. In other words, you don't continue a tradition by keeping it behind plate glass like a constitution which can never be changed. We can get into a whole conversation. But I actually did a whole program on that originalism in music and the law at the Stanford Law Center. But something doesn't survive by being kept identically behind a plate glass, but it survives by being changed. That's the whole principle of the Talmud. It survives by people generation after generation discussing what these meanings are, not by saying it was this thing, but realizing that it constantly gets reinterpreted. What was clear and present danger, everything changes over time. And so I think that that's one of the wonderful things about the American songbook canon is that it has survived by being changed and each generation remakes it in its own way. And that's how it remains to bear fruit for the next generation. What's really American music? What is that? I know we're talking about the songbook, but obviously there's jazz and there's African rhythms. There's blues that fits into there. Rock and roll comes from a lot of that. And I know you've written and talked about this as well. What is American music? Well, I will say, you know, the famous answer that was given by Virgil Thompson a long time ago is American music is anything that was written by an American. I think that obviously he was being facetious, but I think just in your list, there are so many things that have been American music. And I think every composer and every person dips into that well and comes up with whatever particular mixture is theirs. I know that this image of the melting pot is not one we use anymore in terms of political realities, but it certainly is an accurate description of what has happened. I once did a program for NPR called Even Whale Smush, and what it grew out of was, I read a National Geographic article once about whales. Now, you know, whales have their own songs. 
And each tribe, so to speak, in their own ocean has a song that they invent certainly, basically each year. And if you're really knowledgeable about this, you can listen to a whale song and actually say what part of the Pacific Ocean this came from. But what they discovered is if a whale gets lost and he somehow wanders into another pack, he brings his song with him and they incorporate that song into their song. So the gist was even whales smush. And that's been the story of American music. It's the story of smush. <laughs> we have blues, we have jazz, we have folk traditions, and people are constantly smushing it. So what's most American about American music is this smushing. And it's going on today. I'm writing a book on the music of Woodstock generation. And one of the big things that happened in the 60s was, of course, this folk revival, Peter, Paul and Mary, Joan Baez. But if you trace it back in the 50s, you see people like Alan Lomax going down to the South with these handmade recorders, recording prison songs. And then those prison songs get played on a Smithsonian Folkways record. And Bob Dylan hears it, Joan Baez hears it, and they smush and they make up their own version and they call it folk music. But people are saying, how is this folk music if Dylan is writing Blowing in the Wind about the world today? Well, it's folk music because it's smushed from this tradition, from the music he heard. So I think what's most American about American music is its smushedness, if such a word could yes. exist, because there isn't any belief in a pure it's we make it up and we call it American music. So in a weird way, I come back to Virgil Thompson and I agree, American music, anything written by an American, but it's the way that each individual dips into that well, takes what he needs and creates something out of that well of smush. I see kind of a consistent pattern in this theme about exactly what you're saying here, but also even your own organic movement in your own careers smooshing and creating and going to different places, right? Smoosh is definitely the story for me. I mean, at one point there was a PBS documentary written about a symphony that I wrote. I spent two years on the Blackfoot reservation going back and forth, and it was for the um, anniversary of Lewis and Clark. And I wrote it with a Blackfoot poet writing the text. And mm -hmm. so I spent two years going back and forth there. And that was an enormous smush experience. So much of that music not only filtered into what I actually wrote, but the whole sense of community that I uh -huh. experienced out on the reservation totally transformed what I did in other areas of my life because there was such a powerful sense of community there. Community is a buzzword in our time, mostly because we don't have it. Very rarely do we really have a sense of community, and that's why the word is so popular. But there, in some of the poorest places in America, there is a profound sense of community. When something happens in a Native American family that's special, a kid graduates from high school or something, they do a thing called a giveaway. What you do when something good happens is you give away to the community. There, it's the opposite. For us, you have to be rich to be a political leader. There, a mark of being a successful political leader is you're poor because you gave it all away. Crazy Horse gave it all away. And so that sense of what is a community out there smushed, and I started to explore community here. And that's how I started writing a lot of these community pieces. And right now I'm writing a big piece for chorus and orchestra called We Came to America, based on intergenerational immigrant interviews I've done with kids, parents, and their grandparents about their experience coming to America that would never have happened as a project had I not smushed my experience from being out there. So it was not only the music I learned about Native American music that filtered into the piece, 
but it was the entire experience out there of community that smushed into what I did next. So yes, it's all smushed. Having these different experiences, these truly diverse experiences, actually each one, you give something, but you take something also in terms of learning and part of that smoosh, another bit of ingredient for the ongoing recipe that never gets finished, it always gets adjusted. It's a call for or an advocacy for living a varied life, whatever we do as best we can, not everybody can do it. And some jobs lend themselves or career tracks lend themselves more to it than others. But I've always been a believer in how diverse experiences actually help you learn at a deeper level, whatever it is your core world is all about. Maybe for exactly how you're describing it with a smoosh theory. Well, it's also the exact opposite of the way the world's going now, because if you go to Amazon or Netflix, it's all, if you like this, try this. Whereas my experience is the exact opposite. It's the things that you had no idea you would ever be interested in that are most interesting. Otherwise, you simply make your bubble deeper and you go this way. But for me, each of these experiences has been so opening up. I mean, I had an amazing experience going to Istanbul, Turkey, dealing with CEOs there. Things open up so completely when you expose yourself. So my encouragement is to do anything but do the thing that you already like. It's to open yourself up to these diverse experiences. I mean, having to expand on this for the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference was a fantastic experience. Or going to the Dairy Farmers of America and researching what's interesting for dairy farmers totally changed my view of what's going on in the music world. So for me, I'm a big supporter of the wider the lens, the bigger, because you never know what it's going to open up in you. Because I've gotten much more out of these experiences, I think, than what I gave. Keeping with the theme of combining things that on the face of it don't sound like they go together. And another topic you've written about, Jewish immigrants to America, who've written some of the most famous Christmas songs. Yes. Including White Christmas, which might even be the most famous. I don't know. What's going on there? How did that happen? Yeah, that's interesting. And that started a whole big project for me. Well, first of all, there was a documentary film called Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas. This is how I got involved with this. And I was one of the principal talking heads in this. Now, I was not really so much aware of this, but then I started researching this. And yes, it is amazing that almost all of the most famous Christmas songs were written by immigrant Jews. And I started to really think about what that's about. And we don't even realize how subtle it is. Like, for example, take probably the most famous one of all, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. No, I mean, that just sounds like a harmless little story about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, but it was actually written by an immigrant Jew who was ostracized as a child. And what it really is, is a parable and a wish fulfillment. Because think about it. What's the problem with Rudolph? He's got this nose, this red nose, a typical astigmatism for a Jew. So he's Uh got this nose. And all of the other reindeers used to laugh and call him names. This was his childhood as a Jewish kid. But he becomes the hero. But not only does he become the hero because of his, he becomes the hero because of his nose. Because of his Jewishness, it's that very nose that actually saves them. So once you start to see some of the backstory here, it completely changes it. But also you have to understand this idea of here are these immigrant Jews trying to fit in. I mean, the first thing almost all these immigrant Jews did was to change their name. Hyman Arluck became Harold Arlen. Israel Bidlin became Irving Berlin. And so here they are, they're trying to fit in. And what's the way that they fit in is they take the most American of holidays and they literally create the soundtrack of the American dream of Christmas. But as outsiders, somehow they see it from a distance and it becomes their way of assimilating, their way of becoming part of it. And there's something so unbelievably ironic that the world's most famous Christmas song were written by immigrant Jews, but also they created a secular Christmas. 
Because notice that all those songs, they have nothing to do with Bethlehem. They're all about the secular version of Christmas. And that's the one that America latched onto commercially. That's the one that's actually promoted by stores and products. So they literally created a soundtrack for the commercialized secular version of America that we now have. And so I found that a really a fascinating story, but it actually led in an interesting swoosh way as I was mm -hmm. researching Irving Berlin's history for that project and discovering, you know, what it was like when he escaped the pogroms of Europe to come here. It was the story of my grandparents. All four of my grandparents literally almost at the same time were actually escaping and coming to America. But I realized I had never really asked them about it because teenagers aren't interested. They're interested in themselves and not their parents. And so the whole idea for the We Came to America project grew out of that because I wanted to have kids, parents and grandparents share their stories. And I will tell you the experience of getting them all in a room and having the kids hear their parents and grandparents stories about coming to America has been eye-opening and forgetting even the piece I might write at the end, just watching that experience. And by the way, the pandemic was great for that because everyone was on Zoom and you could get parents, grandparents, and kids in one place. But watching the kids hear their parents and grandparents' stories in the ways I did not, which came from the Irving Berlin research for the Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas, actually has been eye-opening and worth it, even if I never wrote a piece of music. It's really been amazing to watch these kids hear their parents and grandparents' stories. Is that a book or an article? Is that something available for people to take a look at? This is a symphony I'm writing right now. It's a symphony for chorus and orchestra that will premiere in 2024 with the New Jersey Symphony at NJPAC. There's already on Facebook, there's a We Came to America Facebook uh -huh. page that as I did all my research on the history of immigration in America, there's all sorts of stuff and there's little clips as I'm writing the piece. So this is an ongoing project which will have with my goal is to have it be all over America and to have choruses all over America do the piece and all the people in the chorus do their own intergenerational immigrant interviews in their own communities so they get to know those people the same way I have. Because I will tell you this, and this is not a political statement, you cannot hate immigrants when you have heard their stories. The goal is not to politicize this, but to humanize it, because these stories are just absolutely unbelievable. What you're describing now, Rob, is really speaking to me. I did some genealogy during the pandemic because I had some more time than I would yeah, ordinarily <laughs> have. Discovered second cousins that I never knew existed in four different countries. My parents are gone and I never knew my grandparents, but I love this idea of intergenerational. And I had one small, very small example of this where I had in an earlier podcast, the CEO of the Toronto Blue Jays, his name is Mark Shapiro, and he was on with his father, who was one of the first agents in the history of baseball. I put them on at the same time. I'm not quite sure how that worked out that way. It was like kind of lucky. And afterwards, his dad wrote me such a nice note about how he was just so happy to be sharing the stage, so to speak, with his son to hear about in a different way with somebody like me is kind of an objective person just asking questions, right. just being curious. And both of them really got a lot out of it. And you might be motivating me to maybe do something like that again for some other podcast. It's so powerful. It is. I remember one of these stories. This woman was from Colombia and she was there with her son. She told me about how she was going to get married in Colombia. And she had met this lovely man and she was in Colombia ready to get married. But then she wanted to come to New York to get a dress for the wedding. So she came to New York to get the dress, but she met some guy at the dress store, ditched the guy back in Colombia and married <laughs> the guy there. The son had no idea. That was how oh, his parents yeah. got together. 
one story about someone who came to America illegally, lived in his car for four years, now is this huge pastor of a major community church. Just incredible story after story. And the generations do not hear these stories. So just watching them hear it, I feel like it's a gift to them as well as a gift to me. Not to mention that we're also getting lyrics that I'm going to set to music. And some of them come from the most surprising places. You know, one of the movements of this piece is what we left behind is what I'm asking. So I'm talking to people and asking, you know, when you came to this country, what did you leave behind? What did you bring with you? How do you keep it going? And one 13-year-old kid said this beautiful sentence. I said, how do you sum it up? And he said, home was until it wasn't. And that is a refrain line of an entire movement of this piece now. Home was until it wasn't, which came directly out of this. But again, all of this really grew out of one thing leading to the other, smushing this, smushing this. And had I just stayed there, I was a professor at Yale of music in my 20s, from when I was 24 to about 29. Had I stayed in that realm, talking about music to students about music, none of this would have ever happened. And it's only from breaking out of that predetermined path that things be really interesting for me. That became a path that was right for me, but not necessarily for everyone else. That's pretty wise what that kid said to you. I was amazed. You hear these incredible things when you talk to these people. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned the Woodstock Generation uh, book that you're working on. So first of all, when I first thought about this, I thought, well, that's a really interesting departure, but I no longer think that after talking to you for 45 (laughs) minutes. It's completely, I don't know about expected, but completely natural and I'm not batting an eye about it. But I'm interested in what you're trying to do. What's this book going to say to us? Yeah. And I will tell you this, one of the interesting things is, again, you always have to be listening for possibility. What now has become bears no relationship to the proposal I wrote to Norton that they actually (laughs) signed off on. And the research has taken in a completely different direction. Originally, the idea was to do something like the Listening for America book, I often say, is about zooming in and zooming out. In other words, it's about looking at famous pieces of music over the rainbow or, you know, classics of the American songbook and taking them apart the way I sort of did there with She Loves You, doing that kind of close listening, but also putting it in the perspective of what was happening in the world at the time and sort of both zooming into the music and zooming out to how it actually connects to the world. And that's what I thought it would be even easier to do in Woodstock because never was there a period of time where the music seemed so intimately connected to what was happening in the world of the 60s. But I came across one sense. When I'm writing something, I'm always looking for like, what's possible here? What's the idea that's going to be something? And I came across this single quote from W.E.B. Du Bois from 1901. For your listeners, maybe everybody knows who he was, but he was the first black Harvard graduate. He was an amazing figure in the whole black Renaissance movement, an incredible guy. And in 1901 at the Pan-African Conference, he had this wonderful quote. And he said, now remember, this is 1901. He said, the problem of the 20th century, not the 21st, the problem of the 20th century will be the problem of the color line. And as I was starting this research after George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, the whole racially troubled moment that we're living in, I realized 120 years later, it's the same quote. The problem of the 21st century is the problem of the color line. And as I started to immerse myself in the music and the history of the 60s, what I realized, and this is the central new lens that I'm looking through for this whole book is that I'm going to say that almost every single note of music written in the 60s is about race. Okay, we got to pause on that. That's my lens. Well, if a great hook for a book is to say something counterintuitive, you've hit that one out of the park because you're not hedging your bet. You're saying every bit of music. 
Yep. In fact, she loves you. The one we were just looking at. What is the single moment that defines the early Beatles for everybody, even to this day? There's the moment she loves you. And then they go, woo. And they do that high woo. And they shake their hair. If you had to pick one moment that defined the Beatles, it would be the most white moment, them shaking their hair going, that woo is a direct take from gospel. Go back to Dinah Washington, that high woo via Tutti Fruity and Little Richard. That's a gospel mannerism. All of the early Beatles music came from them listening to this black music. Even that one moment that so defined the white Beatles is a direct line from gospel music. And in the book, one of the great things about this book is you can hear everything that I'm going to talk about. All of the music is available. You touch it, you hear it. You'll hear Dinah Washington doing a high gospel woo. You'll hear Tutti Fruity doing the high, and then you'll hear She Loves You, and you'll realize that even the whitest moment is about Black music. Cultural appropriation is the entire history of early rock and roll. Elvis Presley's very first song, That's All Right Mama, was Arthur Big Boy Crudup's song that he literally stole and took, I mean, he gave him credit verbally, but not a single cent of royalties. Almost all of the first rock and roll hits were simply white covers of Black music that they stole. Cultural appropriation is at the heart of rock and roll. Anyway, I mean, there's lots more about it. And then you get the reverse example. You get Barry Gordy in Motown, in which it's the reverse. You're actually having black people whiten their music to actually make it acceptable to white people. So it was that one sentence, listening for possibility, you ask about creativity. It's that one sentence from W.B. Du Bois, the problem of the 20th century will be the problem of the color line. And that's what the music of the 60s is about. And it's obviously intimately connected to that moment in time. Let me ask you about one of my favorite artists, Joni Mitchell. I'm doing a big program on her next year in New York called Ladies oh, and Canyon. Joni Mitchell and Carol King next year. I'm going to have to make sure I get to see that one. But I'm a big fan. And I mentioned Joni Mitchell because she wrote the anthem for Woodstock. And apparently, if this story is correct, she was in a hotel room. She wasn't even there watching. She wasn't there, right? Yeah. She was watching it and she just created the song, which is genius at work. Would you say that her music as well is kind of rooted in race in some form? You mentioned the song Woodstock, and I have such a personal history of this. When I was in high school, I was always the kid who was giving people trouble, asking questions, always wanting to do something different. And for my senior project, I went to the Ethical Culture Fieldston School. My senior project was on radical school alternatives. And I went to the Kennedy Center to do a speech as a high school student on radical school alternatives because I just believed I wanted to follow my path, this smush path. But schools were not about helping me follow my smush path. No, and so no, one of the not. things I did for this radical school alternatives project for my senior project was I went to teach in third grade and I did a unit on Woodstock. And what I did for my unit on Woodstock was I played them both songs. I played them Joni Mitchell's version of Woodstock. And then I played them the Crosby, Stills and Nash version of Woodstock. And what I wanted to show them was how different the same experience can look when refracted through two people's completely different lenses. So what Crosby Stills, which is that hard rock version, which was part of what that experience was. And Joni mm -hmm. Mitchell's is this mystical far removed one, which I believe came partly from her not being there in the same way that those immigrant Jews were able to write Christmas songs because it wasn't actually their tradition. There's something about being an outsider that gives you a view of an experience that changes that experience. And so what I wanted these kids to see is that there is no one answer. There is no one experience that each person comes to this experience with a different lens. And Joni Mitchell, first of all, being a Canadian, different from Crosby, Stills, and Nash, who yeah. each have their own experience, but that everyone comes and it's back to that Stravinsky quote. You look at this thing and then you pass it on 
only when you make it bear fruit by the interaction between the thing and yourself. So Joni Mitchell brought something beautiful and mystical to that experience, which was very different than the dirty toilets and the rain and the mud, which you feel much more in the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young experience of Woodstock. But those two songs really show that different lens and what kind of lens you bring. Life isn't what's out there. It's how you see what's out there. So this makes me think about kind of going back to some of the great composers of history. Is the same thing hold in terms of being an outsider perspective or not? But when Mozart wrote with Mozart wrote and, and Bach and Beethoven and all the greatest of the greats, I'm sure they're not all the same. You could just maybe take one example. I will. A perfect one. Beethoven. Beethoven was probably the most difficult, obnoxious person who ever lived on the planet. I mean, he alienated every person who ever liked him, helped it. I mean, he was your worst nightmare of a dinner guest. He was just so difficult to deal with. Constant temper tramp, just horrible. And as he became deafer and deafer, he became worse and worse and more and more solitary. Yet, interestingly enough, a person who had the most difficulty with connection of any major composer wrote music that was completely about connection. And in fact, what Beethoven's music is about, if you look at it, and this is big picture stuff, is he says, we look at the surface of things and we see difference. But when you look behind the difference, what you discover is we are all the same. Now, I'm not going to go through it step by step, but take the most famous notes he ever wrote. I mean, these loud unison notes. Now, if we had time, I would go through, but there's a moment in the middle of the piece that could not sound more different than that. It's a moment that goes like this. I mean, what could sound more different than that unison loud thing and these soft chords? The whole piece is a step-by-step demonstration that they are the same that they are absolutely connected. And that's what Beethoven's music is about. The most famous Ninth Symphony is Alla Menschen werden Bruder, All Men Are Brothers. And that's the music that they played when the Berlin Wall fell. But it's really the very basic compositional technique that this is all about. On the back of the dollar bill, what does it say? E pluribus unum, out of many, one. Which, of course, originally referred to the desire to create out of many states, one. But what Beethoven's music is, is about out of many one and out of one many. Out of this, I mean, what he's saying is we are all connected. Even this, Republicans, and this, Democrats. And the whole purpose of a piece of music is to show that we are all connected, that beneath our surface differences, we are all connected, e pluribus unum. So, That's a perfect example of a composer who, in his personal life, was completely unable to find connection of any kind, but who therefore desperately turned that need for connection into music that was all about connection. And every piece of Beethoven is about taking two ideas that could not sound more different to anyone and then showing you step by step how they are the same, teaching us, which he should really be giving a lecture to Congress, teaching us here is how you connect. In spite of your differences, we're all the same. And I could play you example after example, but that's what it's all about. These things that look different, but are in fact the same. So that's a commonality across a lot of Beethoven's work. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Appassionata Sonata begins. Eventually he's going to take this and then he does it here. 
Now he says, let's look beneath the surface of what is that? If I take this, it starts on this note and it ends on this note. Listen. He says, I can sum that up as just this. When I do it here, I start on this note and I end on this note. So I can say it's just this. So I've got these two notes, this and this, and these four measures, I'm going to say are this. Now that's pretty amazing, right? It's the same note, the same note on the surface. What could sound more different? And this. But he shows you step by step. We are all connected. We are all the same. But you have to look in a particular way. You have to look past whether you're pro or anti this to see that we are fundamentally all connected by a person who had the most difficulty of connection of any major composer. And it's not that he necessarily was doing this, I don't know, consciously or on purpose. He may have, who knows, but there's no reason to assume that that was the case. He's consciously doing the musical connections, but not aware in the same way that, you know, we're often not aware. There's knowing and knowing, as Freud says. <laughs> and going back to the Beatles, when you see that documentary demonstrating the creative process, it was so interesting to see. You see how they kind of play off of each other. They joke around. They do a lot of foolish things, at least that came in there. But somehow that was part of the creative process. And they're always listening for possibility. You can hear it. They're trying something out. They're trying the next thing. I mean, watching Paul create the song Get Back. You know, he's just strumming. He's trying adds this. But you can see it's that listening for possibility. I can hear, okay, I'll add this. And then they listen to each other. And it's this group listening for possibility, which is a whole different kind of collective composition. We have this idea in classical music that the genius goes off into the Viennese forest, grows a beard, and comes out with the masterpiece. But it's a whole different kind of creativity with the Beatles. Ellington's like that as well. If you look at Ellington's music, he start with an idea, but the band helped create it. And they would all put the whole thing together. It's really a different kind of concept of collaboration. And I think a very uplifting kind. You also make me think about some jazz music where they truly are listening. They're playing off of each other. And I don't know whether Miles Davis, and you mentioned the band, Miles Davis's band, and when he did Kind Blue, whether that was a similar type of thing. Jazz is all about being in the present and listening and responding listening. instantly. And in fact, that's why I think it's so exciting to be an audience member there because it's what I call heightened listening. And when you're in that environment of somebody else doing heightened listening, you participate. And for me, that's what these What Makes It Great programs are. I try to create an environment of heightened listening. Very often what we do is we'll take a piece apart and then we'll perform it. But the whole goal is the audience, you, you have created the audience of your dreams because by the time they're listening to the piece, they are having that kind of heightened listening that you've created by dissecting. Like I guaranteed you, if we played She Loves You Now and we played that opening six seconds, people would hear the, they'd hear the three chords, they'd hear the drum part, the triplet, they'd hear George's thing. And I guarantee you, even though everyone knows that by heart and has heard it a thousand times, they have never actually heard that. I'm going to play that right after we're done because I want to experience that deeper sense of it. Rob, it's been such a fun conversation. Time to wrap up. And I'm going to ask you my favorite last question. It's about advice, but what's different about it is it's advice to yourself when you were a young man, when you were, I don't know, let's say 20 years old. If you magically went back in time, there's some little bit of advice you give to yourself when you were 20 years old. I don't know about life, about anything that you think of. There definitely is. And it's, by the way, advice that I now give to people who are 20 years old because I wished it had actually been given to me. And it comes, uh -huh. um, Anne Lamott wrote this wonderful book called Bird by Bird. 
Bird by Bird is a book. It's supposedly a manual for writers, but it's really a manual about living. And in it, she talks about being stuck. Whatever your project is, you're stuck, you're guiding nowhere. And then she says something like, and there on page four or five, there's one sentence that has life, smell, sound, and even a single line of dialogue. And something in you goes, hmm, H-M-M dot, dot, dot. And anything can make you go, hmm. It might be that sentence about W.B. Du Bois that I talked about. It might be that Boulanger telling me you have great talent for music, but no skills. An ad you see somewhere, a comment. I mean, anything can make you go, hmm. But the two most important things in life that I wish someone had told me and that I still think are valuable to everyone are, first, A, listen for the hmm. Listen for what makes you go, hmm, whatever that is, because nobody can tell you what should... Forget shoulds. Only you know what makes you go, hmm. And the second part and the most important advice is when something makes you go, hmm, act on it. Do it. When Boulanger made me go, hmm, I quit Yale and I stayed in Paris. When W.B. Du Bois's line came, I changed the course of my book. When something makes you go, hmm, do it. Listen to it. Follow it out. So I think that's the best advice I can give to anyone. And that's the advice that it took me a long time to realize because no one was telling me to follow that out. And in fact, my parents were saying, don't follow it out. We're not <laughs> paying for you to follow it out. You're on your own. But to me, that is really the key because I do believe everyone has something. My favorite Mark Twain quote is there are two important days in life, the day you're born and the day you figure out why. <laughs> and not everybody gets to figure it out. And to me, that's the entire purpose of education is to help you figure out why. And everyone's is different. But once you figure it out, once you get what makes you go, hmm, do it. So that's my advice to the 20-year-old me and any other 20-year-old who happens to be listening. Rob Capolo, thank you so much for being on the SIDCast, for chatting with us, for giving us a masterclass in life as much as in music. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SIDCast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.